I'm inclined right now as I take in what we've just done to imagine the reality of that on that day. But it's not just about that day. It's how do we get through this day. And Amory, you, you stopped me in my tracks this morning, brother. Thank you. I love you. I want you to know I love you. And I, I want you to know that hug and those words are from the God that gave his son for you, as, as, you, as you said. It's, and, and so that day will come for Amory. It's going to come for me, and it's going to come for any of us who've bowed the knee to Jesus. It's going to come. But until that day, we get to go out of here and walk worthy because like Daniel heard in his day, I love you, Daniel. I'm, I find, I'm very fond of you, Daniel. And Daniel is like Amory and like me. Chris, he's, he's like any of us. I'm trying to do what I can do and say yes when God asks me to do something, but I don't really have it all going on. Maybe I'm not exactly what he's looking for. I don't know. But I think the takeaway is uh, look at the cross and remember who he died for. And that will start to change your image of you. And it'll, char- it'll change how you live in this world, won't it? Because you get to go from here. It feels good right now, but it's true. When you leave these doors in a little bit, it, it'll be just as true then. You are deeply loved. And thank you, Jesus, for deeply loving us. Amory, me, any of us who bow the knee to your son. We recognize you're awesome and we are not. You are worthy and we are not. But because you did that for us, you shock us and say, I I think differently of you than you tend to think of yourself. I, I really love you. And it's based in that that I want to do things in you that will change you. What are you going to turn me into, Lord? I'm going to make you look like my son. Will you let me? And if I can do that in you, I can do it in anybody you rub shoulders with. So will you go for me? I want my answer to be yes and yes. For I ask it in the name of Jesus, the one who I want to become like. Amen. 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 Hey, hug somebody near you. I got a great hug from Amory right there. If they're a totally new person, give them a hug. So good. I um I love it. I love a lot of things about church, and uh, one of them is what we're doing right now. I, um, if, you're, if you're live stream, we are so grateful that you've joined us today and from lots of different places, and many of you check in on a regular basis. 
uh, I want to encourage you to do that. Keep doing that. Some of you very local, you just can't get here. Um, you're limited in some way. Uh, some of you live in a faraway place, and, um, and I get that. I, I just want you to know um, there's no way to virtually hug uh, somebody. And, and you say, well, I don't, I'm not a hugger. Well, you should be, okay? So, um, but here's the deal. Jesus loves you, and he hugs you. And, and, um, and he's, he's going to welcome the embrace when we are where we just sang about, face-to-face with him. Amen? He's going to welcome the embrace. I'm not sure if he's going to get tired of it and go, okay, enough. But I, uh, I doubt it. I think he's uh, eager to see us face-to-face. Um, so children, I think they're already on their way. They've already headed to a wonderful there was quite a stir of them heading out. Uh, but uh, today we have, uh, we have been in a study that has uh, inspired me and many of you. I hear it from you, and I'm glad for that, and it tells me we're going in the right direction, and God is doing deep things in us. And speaking of directions, today my title says it all, Going Global. The gospel up to this point started in Jerusalem and had spread uh, outside of the gates of Jerusalem, if you will, and up as far as Samaria and maybe as west as Caesarea, but um, it's going to really take off. In fact, in our study, we come to chapter 13 of Acts, and you'll notice a significant development take place, and it will carry, that development will carry on for, oh, 2,000 years and counting. You with me? To this day. And it starts here in chapter 13. So I thought it would be good right here, just for a few moments, to take uh, a few moments to do a a brief summary of how we got here, okay? A a summary of of sorts that, that stems from the start of the First church is what some call it the early church. I call it the first church. There was no church before them, so it makes sense, right? From the first church to its growth, how did that first church start? To its growth, and we come today to this global reach. Going global is what I've called it. Um, the past five chapters, though, have I can tell from input and interaction with you, uh, they they contained a lot. They are uh, they detail uh, um, a lot when it comes to uh, how this church had its roots in Jerusalem and 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 the promised Holy Spirit promised by Jesus actually came in Jerusalem in a dramatic day that Jesus predicted in his words to start Acts in chapter 1, verse 8, at Pentecost. It was a day that the the city would never forget, and its citizens would be equally forever touched by. Um, From that start, the gospel began to spread despite and maybe um, because of severe headwinds. There was resistance And some of the toughest resistance, some of the strongest opposition came from the religious establishment. They were known in the day, the Jewish establishment was the Sanhedrin. And they were the 
uh, sort of the cops. They were the ones that maintained order and, uh, and uh, adherence. Um, there was conformity that was expected to this religion that was being shaken in those days. And they, the Bible tells us, I'm not making this up, became jealous because of this new thing that they couldn't put words to. They just saw it. And they heard that this Jesus came and is really at the heart of this disturbance, but they, they couldn't deny it either. And that creates a spirit that's not right. It's called jealousy. And they begin to go, how come, how come that's happening? And a short time later, we got to stop it. And so they began to do really ugly things. They would take uh, the early disciples and, and um, scold them and Silas and, and there's Peter is in prison not once but twice in jail. In fact, one time about to face execution the next day. They're serious about stopping this, uh, this insurrection, this rise up of new religion, which couldn't be right because we're the keepers of right was the thinking in that day. This resentment, we're told, spilt over. It erupted against a first church leader that stands out in most of our minds. He was, he was a humble leader, um, and he was filled with God's grace and the Holy Spirit. His name was Stephen. And, um, and he, of course, in chapter 7, faced the Sanhedrin as others did. Only in his case... Um, he gave, I know I'm a pastor and we share the same name, so I'm really locked into Stephen in this story. But the truth is, it's one of the most um, articulate descriptions of the work of God from the beginning of time until this very moment. And it's all in one chapter. So you got to read chapter 7 to go, whoa, now that's what a Stephen can really preach like, right? <laughs> you, you, he's really got it, and he says it. And in his defense, he talks about Jesus. And, and the moment came when you could see the darkness settle in on these leaders, when they cover their ears and they, and they scream loudly so they drown out his voice because he had said something that was worthy of choking. And that was... This Jesus went to the cross and he implicated them, these leaders, for their role in what had taken place to Jesus. Uh, that, that, was, that was hard to swallow indeed. And they, they took stones to uh, silence him and they stoned him to death. That's all in chapter 7. That very day, and I don't even need to tell you this, but... It led to a great persecution. Others went, you know what? It got quiet around here. That's a good sound. We can now lead the way we like to lead. And everybody joined in. And, this, and it was on. And if you were a person of the way, a follower of this Jesus, you ran. And you looked for cover and you scattered. The word is used several times. Um, from Jerusalem, you left the town you loved, and you went to places in the surrounding areas, to Judea, and then some of you even went up north because it was quieter up there and safer, and they did that. 
And, um, and as they did that, they carried with them a gospel, a story of good news about Jesus. And so like a lot of trials that come into our lives, we're running for our life and we find a place that's safe off the radar. It's like God says, okay, I can use you there. You're not, this is not bad. This is not all lost. And that's in fact what happened. And so through those early years that I've just captured real quickly, there's a standout person, the Apostle Peter, which if you've ever blown it, not once or twice, but three times, maybe many more. And you thought, no, I am used up. They use, God uses people like, and they, you point to somebody else, but definitely not me. Because remember that chapter in my life or that book, whatever it happens to be for you? Peter was that guy, convinced that his failure could never be redeemed. He was ready to just kick dirt clods the rest of his life. And look at the rest of the disciples and go, man, I, I had it and lost it. Am I talking about you? Or somebody you know? I'll bet I am. And you know what? Read John chapter 21. Would you write that on your note page and circle that? John chapter 21. And you see how it turned out for Peter. Because that happened after he blew it big time. Okay? And then you read Acts and you find that he's playing a key role uh, spreading the gospel as he leads this first church in its outreach. And he's led by the Holy Spirit. We find that to be a theme throughout Acts. The Holy Spirit says, hey, Pete, I want you to go to the coast. Well, it's not a bad place, right? So he takes off and he goes to Caesarea and he, he crosses paths with a Gentile. Ew. That means non-Jew, because Peter was still a Jew, but he met Jesus, also a Jew, with a new way. Changed his life, and so he goes to Caesarea, and he meets Cornelius, this guy. He's, a, he's actually a Roman military guy, and he tells him about Jesus. And the most amazing thing happened. Not only did Cornelius, but his entire family and a room full of people, friends, gave their lives to Jesus, and in front of Peter, they were filled with the Holy Spirit the same way it happened back in Acts 2 on Pentecost. They couldn't believe. He couldn't believe his eyes. And sure enough, it had all happened. Um, so um, I just want to say something that meant a lot to me when I said it. And I know from some of you it did too. If you're a Gentile, and I'm assuming almost everybody hearing my words today, maybe not everyone. If you're Jewish, I'm glad you're here too. But if you're a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, and you have surrendered your heart to Jesus, you and I are Cornelius. See how it connects? So this just isn't a storybook. A history book, it is that, but it connects to real life today. We are Cornelius. Meanwhile, during those years, God was working in the life of somebody that actually stood by smiling when Stephen, back in chapter 7, was executed. His name was Saul, and he came from a town named Tarsus. And um, 
he, um, it's the first encounter we have of Saul in chapter, chapter 8 and 9. And, um, and Saul was about to encounter Jesus Christ. And that story is told in chapter 9. And I get chills every time I read it. Um, and as, as a brand new believer, Saul, the same zealot that wanted to shut down Christianity, suddenly, almost overnight, turned on a dime and went to Jews and started to argue with them about, uh, he really is God. He really is Messiah. And they were like, you've lost your mind, Saul. And there was a conspiracy to kill him, to shut him down. He, too, got bitten by this new thing. And that can't be left to stand because he was a real standout guy. So he is whisked away, we're told, in chapter 9 and 29 and 30. And it's just a fascinating thing. And he goes away. Some people go, where did he go? Well, we know it was to Tarsus, uh, some of it. And we also know it was about a decade, maybe some say as many as 14 years. He was off the radar for a long time. And um, the question is, what was God doing in his life? We're about to get an answer. Um, He tells us, um, and let me put it in my words, God was chiseling away at him, getting rid of the old Saul of Tarsus and creating a new Paul, the apostle. And you and I have in our hands a Bible that has 14 letters written by, you guessed it, Paul, the apostle. That's his roots. That's his story. And, it, and it's a beautiful story. And that, that's supposed to shock us when we realize that was done by the Holy Spirit of God. He wants to do that in more and more lives, and that's what this morning's about. We're going to talk about that in chapter uh, 13. Um, The Acts of the Apostles, we we have uh, reverently nicknamed it or renamed it, if you will, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is behind every movement that we're going to read about up to this point and from here to the end of this study together. So... um, Jesus said this in Acts 1, verse 8. You will receive power. These, uh, don't just hear me quote this. Imagine standing there because you're about to watch Jesus lift up off the ground and ascend back to heaven and disappear in the clouds. And you would be like me looking at bright lights, only it was the sun. And we would all watch as those last words, these words, are echoed in our mind. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses both to Jerusalem, where they stood, and to Judea, and to Samaria, and he finishes his final words, and to the utmost parts of the world. That was that moment. And that's chapter 13 is where that moment uh, begins. Uh, What we're about to do is to notice three consecutive widening circles westward 
They're known as missionary journeys. We call them missions trips today. It's a fair uh, equal. And Saul, with various different traveling companions, would go with the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus in a first missionary trip, which we start on now, and a second one, and then a third one, and some have even called it a fourth one, but it was his final journey to Rome where presumably he was beheaded there. Okay? So this is the first of those journeys that will cover the pages from here literally to the end of our study. So it's important to capture that for you and give you a little point of reference. Today, however, brings us to the launch, to the ends of the earth, where the message of salvation and human hope of eternity with God in heaven went to the world. More than 2,000 years later, it has come to us. So, where did the launch happen? Well, we're told it was a city that probably, I would love a show of hands if you've been to Antioch, Syria. Anybody here? So, I I don't know if there's cruise ships that like to go there and, uh, you know... um, But it is a real place, and it's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And you might write this down. It's uh, known to be the cradle of Christianity, Antioch, Syria. It's due north, and if you were to today go from Jerusalem to the coast and just head north, you would actually go through Lebanon, uh, Lebanon uh, it's called, and um, not Lebanon, Oregon, but Lebanon there. And, um, and you would come to Antioch of Syria. It's actually in a very eastern part of Turkey in modern-day Turkey. Okay, So it's a real place, and it's the cradle of Christianity. And it happens to be where the disciples of Jesus were first called something you answer to all the time, and I do too, Christians. They were first called Christians in this city. So I want you to look at chapter uh, 11, and I just want you to see how this scattering happened very quickly in a short summary. Verse 19, chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled far, as far as Phoenicia, up in the north, Cyprus, and Antioch. That's the city. Spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however... Men of Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to spread to Greeks also. Easy sentence to read, verse 20, but a huge um, out-of-the-box effort. Telling about the good news of the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent for Barnabas to uh, sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas was a person that will show up again today. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, Saul, He's in the hideout now, right? When, they, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and together they spent a year there teaching great numbers of people. And there's the words in verse 26. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
All right, so chapter 13 begins then from there. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Folks, you have just read about the, the launch of the first missions trip. Is that cool? How many of you have been on a missions trip? Wow, good stuff. We, our aim is to get y'all on one. You say, I'm too old. We'll get you there in a wheelchair. We want you to go. Okay? It's a cool thing. It's amazing. And I've been in this scene numerous, 20 times. And most of them are at the airport. Some are in a church just before we head to the airport. whole bunch of ways, but it always gives me the chills when I read verses 1 to 3. But this is the first one. They're, they're sent out. The leaders in that church made, were made up of two teams, we're told, right there at the beginning. Prophets and teachers. So what did prophets do? You remember Agabus in a recent study? He's a guy that predicted the future. Prophets. Okay? And then teachers are, are, are people that, that use the word of God to explain things to people, specifically who this Jesus is and how to live for him as you walk through this life. That's what a teacher does, and there were plenty of them. We're told two groups, in fact, of them. The important point for us to see in the naming of these leaders is the diversity um, and unity of the leaders that God had called. Some of you are putting that in your mind as an oxymoron. How does diversity and unity work? We're reading about it right here. Not everybody with the same gift or skill or strength or ability. And that, in fact, becomes a secret of their strength. Their strength was seen in this variety. They have prophets and they have teachers. It was true then, you know. That's how God mixed the recipe, if you will. But it's still true now. Do you, do you know that? So much so that Saul, who was part of this scene, about 10 or 12 years later wrote the book of Romans. And he wanted to make sure everybody understood what we just read, that there's a bunch of different people, a variety of folks. They come together and God does great things. There's great strength and gain there. So he says this in Romans 12, Paul is speaking. 10 or 12 years later, four, uh, verses 4 to 8. For just as each of us has one body, he's using an analogy of the physical body, and with many members, that's another word for parts. I've got two arms, two legs, two feet, two eyes, two ears, and so on. And these members do not all, these parts, do not all have the same function. 
So in Christ, though we are many, we form one body and each member or part belongs to all the others. Have a part come off and it's of no use, correct? We all get the analogy here. Still quoting, he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. So he gives some examples. If you have the gift of prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If you have the gift of serving, you see a need and you go, sleeves are rolled up, here we go. He says, if you have that gift of serving, then go for it and serve. If it's in teaching, then what are you doing sitting there quietly? Bible study, preacher, teacher, teach it. People need to hear it. Here's another one. He says, if it's to encourage, how many of you are encouragers? I had you raise your hands once before. You're not telling the truth. You Raise your hand if you're an encourager. You're still not telling the truth. You know why? Because I leave here so encouraged, and so many of you do, because everywhere you turn, somebody's wanting to cop a hug from you. They're, they're saying something that says, you're going to get through this, you know. There are trials in this church that will match any trials anywhere. But we're sustained in those trials by the Holy Spirit of God, and who does he tap to do it? You, me, we do that with each other. So keep doing that. He says, if it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If your, your strength, if your gift is giving, then go for it. Give, he says, generously. Don't tightwad this thing. Go for it. Empty your wallet and purse. Ushers, can you come right now? We're going to work this one. <laughs> Just joking. Okay. So you're already doing that. You, you, you who have the gift of giving abundantly, then do it, he says. Give abundantly. If it's to lead, if you're a leader, then do it diligently. And finally, if it's to show mercy, do it with a smile. Be cheerful. It makes for a really strong mix. You can sense that. We just talked about arms and legs and knees and hips and, you know, it all works together. It makes really strong mix when people do and be their part. If you've stopped short of that or COVID has made you an, an audience where you sit and watch, and I'm not taking a shot at live stream. I'm glad you're with us. But I sure hope, I sure hope you're finding ways to connect. Call us. We, wanna, we want you back here if you can if you can do it. Or wherever you live, we want you in a local church there because they need your gifts too. Um, so do and be your part. And, and, and I got to come back to the text now. So what, what were they doing when they were sent out? Did you notice what they were doing? They were seeking the Lord. That's, that's what they're doing here. They're worshiping, they're fasting, and they're praying. And God almost said shows up. I didn't mean that. I, that's a popular way to say, hey, God showed up. Nonsense. Not theologically correct. God is always here. Let's remember that. So that's a sidebar. Let's, let's roll on. Here's what I do want you to know. 
They were doing spiritual things. Think of that list again. They were doing the stuff of, of fasting and worshiping and praying. It's very holy things, isn't it? Would you agree? And, um, and listen to one pastor who said this about fasting, in case you're not familiar with fasting. It's not so much about food, saying no to food. It's about focus. Fasting is not so much about saying no to the body like I don't want to eat. It's about saying yes to the spirit. Fasting is a means, he concludes, of seeking God. So all those things put God's people in a posture to hear from him. That's what he's saying here. Worship, fast, pray, get ready to hear. Because God wants to talk to you. Did you, did, did you notice? That verse 2, look at how verse 2 starts. While they were doing these things. Um, the Holy Spirit, we're told, spoke. I just think that's so cool. I want that to happen here all the time. I want that to happen in your life group. I want that to happen when you're just praying for a meal and spending a little bit of time with Jesus, and all of a sudden, you don't care about the food you're about to eat. You're like, oh, we're listening. Tell us, Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts. Um, and God spoke, we're told. And uh, did, you, did you notice? His words were real clear and compelling. He names actually two people set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. And he alludes to their purpose, though he doesn't give specifics. He says, uh, set them apart for the work to which I have called them. Now, if I'm Paul or Barnabas, I'm, I'm going, what's that work? Right? It's a fair question. Um, what's the work? What work? Well, we're not told yet. We're actually not told. Neither were they. But when they heard their names, folks, they packed their bags. How many of us have missed something? And God says, I wanted you to go to A, and you went to B. Not quite the Nineveh thing with Jonah, and you went the opposite direction because you're like, no way, no how, God. But I've heard that from people that say, I don't go to Africa. Nope. Uh-uh. I don't go to places where there are big bugs. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't go to uh, people that I don't like. I'm not sure I would put that resistance in, in front of the Lord because he may bring those people to you. Um, so the deal is... Um, they heard their names and they packed their bags. And can I say, isn't that the biggest part when it comes to playing your part in God's program? Take this scene. You know where it's from. I won't tell you. You want me? Yes, you. Uh, the where, the what, the when, and the how, that'll come later. Anybody have a hint where that is? It's in the Bible. 
Abraham was one. Get, whoever said that, you get free coffee. So um, that's right. Get up and go. Uh, he told him where he's leaving, but he started moving, and he left. It's a great one. I'm, I'm thinking of Isaiah when he went into the temple in Isaiah 6. He was grieving. The king had died. And he went there and suddenly had this encounter with a holy God and felt pretty, pretty dirty, actually. And he confessed his sin, and God said these words, Who, whom shall I send? And who will go forth from us? Those are words from God. If you hear those words from God, don't ask where. Isaiah's answer is a model for us. You know what he said? Before he said, send me, he said, here am I. Not here I am. God knew where he was. Here am I as a statement of offering. Here am I. Send me. That's the right response. It means that their prompt reply made sense. As soon as their prayer and fasting ended, hands were laid on them, we're told, and they were sent out. What is laying on of hands? It's an endorsement. It's a, it's a conference on them. They confer their ministry and, and the, the Holy Spirit's calling for them to go out and do what God has told them to do. That's what happens when we lay on hands. I want to tell you about something. I, uh, for a number of years, Debbie and I went to Eastern Europe. And I went to a lot of other countries. And 100% of those trips, we were sent by the church. We went to faraway places, which were really hard fields to work. And there were other teams made up of other people that had been um, uh, folks that, that were part of campus ministries and they, they joined a summer project, they were called. But, but in many of those cases, they weren't closely connected to a local church. Our church would lay hands on us and there would be 150 people that would be going out for summer missions. And... And in our case, we were 20 of them or so, and we were heading to a specific Eastern European country in the days of communism. And when we went there, we, we experienced stuff that was just otherworldly. It was like, we aren't trained professionals. How, did, how is this happening? And the only conclusion we could come to was the Holy Spirit was leading the way and opening these doors. And there were many, many thousands of people coming to Christ. But we were sent. And many of the others went there because they wanted to go and see what it was like. But it was much, it was much more sacred for us. There was this sense of the local church, the leaders, laid hands on Paul, Saul, and Barnabas and sent them out. What I'm, what I'm saying is we weren't entrepreneurs, and, and we were not free agents. We were going out with the anointing, with the sacrifice. We had people at home that promised to stay and pray and pay. 
We said, we want to sign you up to be a part of this missions trip. Because you're not a goer, you're a stayer, a sender. That means you get to stay, pray, and pay for a day. So we kind of signed them up. Hey, would you give what is needed for this student to go for the day? What a great way to break it down. But what am I saying? Every single obstacle we encountered over there, we didn't encounter it alone. We had the sanction, the support, the endorsement of the leadership of the local church saying, don't be an entrepreneur. And hear me now, because that's a spirit that lives strong today, that people say, I, I'm going I'm to I'm do my own thing. I don't think that's a God thing at all. I, I really don't. I think God says, no, you go as an extension and an expression of my local body. And you'll, you'll see doors open and impact happen uh, greater than it would happen otherwise. Don't be your own guy or gal. Don't be independent. It's less of an impact. So um, we, we need to move on. Um, because there's nothing here that we could have some time talking about the fact that there's no, no mention of any thorough planning, um, no mention of any further consultation. The narrative reads fast, verse 4, verse four the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So 14 miles from Antioch, the church that they were in, they went to the port city of Seleucia, and they sailed to Salamis, Cyprus. That's a 120-mile boat trip. Okay? They sailed to this port city, and they get to work, we're reading here. We're even told they went to Jewish, not one synagogue, but a series of synagogues. And we're told at the end of verse 5, they took along John Mark. He will come up later in the narrative of Acts, but in this setting, we know him to be the cousin of Barnabas, so there's a family relationship there. They brought him along. They brought him along, we're told, to be their helper. He's also, you might not know, the Mark that, God would tap to be the human writer of the gospel according to Mark. So he joins them on this first missionary journey. And this gospel team snakes its way uh, from the northeast, where this port city that they arrived, to the southwest, so Cyprus. It's actually a resort area now. People go there all the time. It still exists. Um, it's in the Mediterranean. And they make their way 90 miles to the opposite end of the island in Paphos or Paphos. It was in Paphos that we're told something that really needs to be understood. There is a collision between forces of light and darkness. Between our grand ambitions to follow the Holy Spirit wherever he leads and the realization that there's somebody that's not real happy about that. That's the devil himself. It's the devil that says, I will stand in the way and I will create resistance and problems. And we're about to read that right now. And there's a very real battle that anybody that's ever gone on missions will understand and be able to say, let me tell you my story. 
You go out with a desire to tell people about the light of the world, and there is forces of darkness that are incensed and determined to stop you from doing that. Okay? We're about to read that, verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Proconsul is a really old reference to a governor. He was the governor of this island. The governor, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, who is Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the governor from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, we get his new name here, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? He's not done. Now the hand of the Lord is against you, Bar-Jesus. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the governor, the proconsul, saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. That cool? I mean, this stuff... You can't make it up. Folks, light always wins over darkness. Amen? You'll get opposition. You'll get pushback. You'll get blowback, we say today. That's a strong version. But you know what? Light wins over darkness. Jesus said, I, John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that no one who turns to me shall remain in darkness. He put it to... Verse, one verse, 1246 in John, Jesus says, I'm the light, and I come into a dark world, but if you turn to me, you will no longer live in such darkness. Will you do that today? If you've never turned to Jesus, would you do that? You're going to see scales come from your eyes. You're going to see amazing things happen. Um, th this governor, what a great what a, what a great description. He's, he shows up hungry. He actually reaches out to these guys and goes, hey, I want to hear this. Rumor has it, you guys know something that we're not being told. You know the truth. I want to know about this. He had this sorcerer. It was kind of the, uh, in, a, in a pagan world, it was the best she could do. It was somebody that seemed supernatural, seemed to have some, some special powers, a sorcerer. It's all darkness. And so he had him on his staff. And I, I'm guessing that part of the reason I've wondered for a while, why was Elymas so ticked off, so determined to stop them? Why would anybody get in the way of somebody who wants to know more about Jesus uh, except that he feels threatened? Well, of course he does. He's paid by the governor. He's going to lose his job when the governor turns to Jesus. Um, Sergius, um, what a great name too. I think he was Hispanic. I'm not really sure. But um, anyway, 
great, great. The governor just says, I just want to know. And Elymas says, no chance. I'm going to stand in the way of that. So seeing, I think, seeing this deep darkness in Elymas, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he calls a, a spade a spade, doesn't he? I've never used that. I thought that in my spirit. When I read this story, I think, maybe I should be bolder. When somebody is just, there's no rational reason for them to stand in the way for somebody to trust Jesus. Boy, that's, that's saying it strong. I mean, his, his rebuke uh, of this sorcerer, pointing out his true colors, you're the son of the devil. Elemis was practiced at spelling out or handing out darkness, spewing it out. And now Paul says you're going to stew in your own darkness. You know, I think this bears mentioning as we wrap it up. Uh, Saul had the same experience, did he not? I'm sure he, he goes back to Acts 9 when he, was, he met Jesus and he was flattened. It says, struck to the ground. Here's this voice, can't see a thing for days, for a while. Goes into the town. Damascus, where he was heading. Finally, the scales come from his eyes, and he sees. That was Jesus. Um, well, we're told the governor, he had seen enough, and he had heard enough. Notice what changed his life. It wasn't this powerful altercation. It was, I, I'm, I'm hearing truth here. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord, we're told in verse 12. Um, I want to ask you something that is uh, probably a reality you are uncomfortably aware of in your own life. But um, verse 11 uses a sentence that doesn't appear too many places in the Bible. It, it appears elsewhere. But look at verse 11 and you'll see it's part of his rebuke. Now the hand of the Lord is against you, said Saul to Elymas. The hand of the Lord is against you. It was used in the Old Testament as who I thought of was King David when he had sinned with Bathsheba. He committed adultery and then murdered her husband to cover his tracks. It's a really dark, the darkest moment in his life. And um, when he had when he had repented and been restored, and um, he never got over it, David didn't. There were consequences, but the impact personally caused him to write something in Psalm 32, where he said of himself that all day long, when he was still covering up what he had done, God's hand was against me. Was against me. Um... And I think that's what, what is in the heart of those words. Now the hand of the Lord, Elemas, or Jesus, the hand of the Lord is against you. Um, I'm, I'm the opposite. I want to have the hand of the Lord uh, upholding me, right? Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, says the Lord. Isaiah 41.10. That's what I want. I know that's what you want. 
But I'm just going to ask you, is there some sin that you've done that, like David in Psalm 32, resulted in the hand of God against you? You say, well, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Oh, no. Read Hebrews 12 and realize that out of love, God will oppose your program until you repent and come to contrition and sorrow over your sin. Even one of his own. Does that mean you're going to hell? No, it just simply means you will lack the blessing. You will lack the freedom. You will lack, you will lack so much of the... Um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Uh, John 10, 10. I came to give life, Jesus said. The abundance that he talks about, I don't know too many people that can walk with unconfessed sin in their life and, um, and feel blessed. By design, you're dysfunctional. And God's hand is a, against you. Let's turn it around. That's what this story's telling us happened to Bar Jesus. We actually don't know the outcome. We don't know if he made a redemptive turn. We do know that in David, Psalm 32. What's your story going to look like? Um, what a start, right, to the first missionary trip. During this... Uh, island tour, they go to all these synagogues and they end up reaching the governor. Um, they make their way from the island now and they go 185 miles north on a ship and they come to the mainland, verse 13 tells us, from Paphos. Peter and his, or rather Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. It's the mainland, South Turkey where John left them to return to Jerusalem. I have a question for you that I don't plan to answer, at least not today. Why did John leave them? Um, the trip had just begun. They've just now hit the mainland. That was a short stop in the island. Great impact, great drama. Cool things happen. And they arrive and presumably get ready to roll forward and we'll see it next week. Only John left them. And it's only Barnabas and only Paul. Why would he leave them? Something for us to think about. Um, I'll give you a little hint. Um, a lot of reasons have been suggested. Uh, at the bottom of your outline, there's a lot of other scriptures that I haven't alluded to this morning, and I hope you'll read them. Some of them might give you a little bit of your answer to why John left. You say, well, why is that a big deal? Read chapter 15, and you'll see it was a huge big deal. Um, so um, with that, I'm done. Would you bow your heads with me? And um, and let me let me encourage you to seek God as the church in Antioch did. Don't t don't don't say yeah, but Pastor, I'm retired. 
I don't, I don't think the answer ever works. doesn't mean you have a vocation, but it means you do have a calling. It, it does mean that there's something for you to do. And in, unless I miss my guess, you're probably like the rest of us. You have obstacles in the way. I've said it before, but college students, they're the, they're the easiest to work with because they don't have mortgage, MasterCard, or marriage in the way. They just go for it. And I know there's stuff that stops some of us. But what would happen if we were doing the things that we saw them doing in this church? We were just praying, fasting, worshiping. And God, while that was happening, his Holy Spirit spoke. That's what I'm after. We sing a song sometimes called Oceans. And there's two parts of the song that really grab me, especially in this message. One is God's call. You call me out upon the waters. You say, well, I'm safe at home. Yeah, but he's calling you upon the water. The great unknown where feet may fail. I can read stories like that in the Bible. But there I find you in the mystery, the song goes on to say. In oceans deep, my faith will stand. As we prepare to sing this song together again, the chorus is our response. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. And my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. I pray that you're hearing right now, Holy Spirit, more than just my words, people here praying to you, worshiping you. Some are in a season of fasting, but this would be the time that you speak to all of us. Speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit. And may us, may all of us say, here am I. Whatever mission plan you have for my life, here am I. Send me.